Chapter Eight, Part Four of Royal Highness by Thomas Mann, translated by A. Cecil Curtis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espaillat. Eyewitnesses asserted later that the general inattention had verged on the scandalous during the perambulation of the Grand Duke, as Albrecht reached successive spots with his dignified aunt, a hasty bowing and billowing without the fitting composure ensued, but otherwise all faces were turned to one point only in the ball, all eyes directed with burning curiosity on this point alone. She who stood yonder had had enemies in the hall, at least among the women, the female Trümmerhaufs, Prenzlaus, Verzans, and Platovs, who were plying their fans here, and sharp and cold female glances had scrutinized her, but whether her position was now too well established for criticism to venture to assail her, or her personality itself had conquered the secret opposition, all had declared with one voice that Imma Spoelmann was as fine as the daughter of the King of the Mountains. The whole town, the clerk in the government office, the messenger at the street corner, knew her toilette by heart next morning. It had been a gown of pale green crepe de chine, with silver embroidery and priceless old silver lace on the bodice. A tiara of diamonds had glittered in her dark hair, which showed a tendency to fall in smooth wisps across her forehead, and a long hanging chain of the same stones was wound two or three times round her brown throat. Small and childlike, yet strangely earnest and sensible-looking, with her pale face and big, strangely speaking eyes, she had stood in her place of honor by the side of Countess Louvignol, who had been dressed in brown as usual, though this time in satin. When the cortege reached her, she had, with a kind of coy pertness, made a suggestion of a curtsy, without completing it, but when Prince Klaus Heinrich, with the yellow ribbon and the flat chain of the family order, for constancy over his tunic, the silver star of the Grimburg griffin on his chest, and his anemic cousin on his arm, whose conversation was limited to yes, passed by her directly after the Grand Duke, she had smiled with closed lips and nodded to him like a comrade, which sent something like a quiver through the company. Then, after the diplomats had been received by the Grand Ducal party, the presentations had begun, begun with Imma Spoelmann, although there had been two Countess Hunskiels and one Baroness von Schulenburg-Tressen among the debutantes. With an ingratiating smile, which showed his false teeth, Herr von Bühl had presented Spoelmann's daughter to his master, and Albrecht, sucking his lower lip against his upper, had looked down on her coy semi-curtsy, from which she had raised herself, to scrutinize with her speaking eyes the suffering hussar colonel in his silent pride. The Grand Duke had addressed several questions to her, an exception to an otherwise strict rule. He had asked her how her father was, what effect the Ditlinde Spa had, and how she liked on the whole being with us, questions which she had answered in her broken voice with a pout and a wag of her dark head. Then, after a pause, a pause perhaps of internal struggle, 
Albrecht had expressed his pleasure at seeing her at court, whereupon Countess Louvignol had executed her curtsy with an evasive glance from her eyes. This scene, Imma Spoelmann in the presence of Albrecht, long remained the favorite topic of conversation, and although it had passed, as it was bound to pass, without anything unusual happening, yet its charm and importance must not be overlooked. It was not indeed the climax of the evening, that, in the eyes of many, was the quadrille d'honneur, in the eyes of others the supper. In reality, however, it was a secret dialogue between the two chief actors in the piece, a short, unnoticed exchange of words whose contents and actual result the public could only guess, the settlement of certain tender struggles on horseback and on foot. As to the quadrille d'honneur, there were people who declared next day that Miss Spoelmann had danced in it, with Prince Klaus Heinrich as her partner. Only the first part of this story was correct. Miss Spoelmann had taken part in the solemn dance, but as the British consul's partner and Prince Klaus Heinrich's vis-à-vis. -vis. This was fairly strong, but what was still stronger was that the majority of the guests did not consider it an unheard-of thing, but on the contrary, almost a matter of course. Yes, Imma Spoelmann's position was established. The popular conception of her personality, as the public learned the next day, had prevailed in the court ballroom, and what is more, Herr von Knobelsdorff had taken care that this conception should be expressed with all the publicity he thought desirable not with distinctive or aggressive respect. No, Imma Spoelmann had been treated ceremoniously, and at the same time with systematic, intentional emphasis. The two masters of the ceremonies on duty, chamberlains in rank, had introduced selected dancers to her, and when she had left her place, close by the low red platform where the Grand Ducal family sat on damask chairs, to dance with her partners, they had busied themselves, just as when the princesses danced, in clearing her a space under the chandelier in the middle and protecting her from collisions, an easy task in any case, for a protective circle of curiosity had formed round her when she danced. It was reported that when Prince Klaus Heinrich asked Miss Spoelmann for the first time, a deep drawing of breath, a formal shh of excitement had been heard in the ballroom, and the masters of the ceremonies had found it difficult to keep the ball going and to prevent the whole company standing round the dancers in gaping curiosity. The women especially had watched the pair with an excited delight, which, had Miss Spoelmann's position been only a little weaker, would undoubtedly have taken on the form of rage and malice. But the pressure and influence of public feeling, that powerful inspiration from below, had worked too powerfully on every one of the five hundred guests for them to be able to regard this spectacle through any eyes other than those of the people. It did not seem to have occurred to the prince to impose any restraint upon himself. His name, shortened to K.H., appeared twice on Miss Spoelmann's program, and besides, he had sat out several other dances with her. They had danced yonder, her brown arm had rested on the yellow silk ribbon that crossed his shoulder, and his right arm had encircled her light and childlike figure, 
while, as usual, when he danced, he had placed the left on his hip, and guided his partner with one hand only. With one hand! When supper-time came, a further article in the ceremonial conditions which Herr von Knobelsdorff had contrived for Imma Spoelmann's visit to court came into staggering force. It was the article which dealt with the order of seating at the table. For while the majority of the guests supped at long tables in the picture gallery and in the hall of the twelve months, supper was laid in the silver hall for the Grand Ducal family, diplomats, and leading court officials. In solemn procession, as when they entered the ballroom, Albrecht and his party entered the supper-room punctually at eleven o'clock, and Imma Spillmann passed by the lackeys, who kept the doors and repelled the uninvited, on the arm of the British consul, and entered the silver hall to take her place at the Grand Ducal table. That was unheard of, and at the same time, after all that had gone before, so logically consequential, that any surprise or disgust would have become idiotic. The motto for the day was to be prepared for anything in the way of omens and phenomena. But after supper, when the Grand Duke had withdrawn, and Princess Griseldis had opened the cotillion with the Chamberlain, expectation was again raised to a fever point, for the general question was, had the Prince been allowed to present Miss Spulman with a bouquet? His instructions had obviously been not to give her the first, he had first given one each to his Aunt Catherine and a red-haired cousin, but he had then advanced towards Emma Spoelmann with a bouquet of lilac from the court gardens. As she was about to raise the lovely bunch to her nose, she had hesitated for some unknown reason with a look of apprehension, and it was not till he had encouraged her with a laugh and a nod that she decided to test the fragrance of the bouquet. Then they had danced and chatted quietly together for a long time. And yet it was during this dance that the unnoticed dialogue, that conversation of a palpably bourgeois tenor and practical result, had taken place, and this is what it was. "'Are you satisfied this time, Emma, with the flowers I bring you?' "'Of course, Prince. Your lilac is lovely and smells quite as it should. I love it.' "'Really, Emma?' but I'm sorry for the poor rose-bush down in the court, because its roses disgust you with their moldy smell. I won't say that they disgust me, Prince. But they disenchant and chill you, don't they? Yes, perhaps. But have I never told you of the popular belief that the rose-bush will one day be redeemed, on a day of general happiness, and will bear roses which will add to their great beauty the gift of a lovely natural scent? Well, Prince, we'll have to wait for that. No, Emma, we must help and act. We must decide, and have done with all hesitation, little Emma. Tell me, tell me to-day, have you confidence in me? Yes, Prince, I have gained confidence in you latterly. There you are. Thank heaven. Didn't I say that I must succeed in the long run? And so you think now that I am in earnest, real, serious earnest about you and about us? Yes, Prince. Latterly I have thought that I can think so. At last! At last, irresolute little Emma! Oh, how I thank you! I thank you! But in that case you're not afraid, and will let the whole world know that you belong to me? 
Let them know that you belong to me, Royal Highness, if it's all the same to you. That I will, Emma, loudly and surely, but only on one condition, namely, that we don't only think of our happiness in a selfish and frivolous way, but regard it all from the point of view of the mass, the whole, for the public weal and our happiness, you see, are interdependent. Well said, Prince, for without our studies of the public weal, I should have found it difficult to decide to have confidence in you. And without you, Emma, to warm my heart, I should have found it difficult to tackle such practical problems. Right. Then we'll see what we can do, each in our own place. You with your folk, and I with my father. Little sister, he answered quietly, and pressed her more closely to him in the dance. Little bride. Undoubtedly a peculiar plighting of troth. To be frank, everything was not yet settled, or nearly settled. Looking back, one must say that, if one factor in the whole had been altered or removed, the whole would have been in imminent danger of coming to nothing. What a blessing, the chronicler feels tempted to cry, what a blessing that there was a man at the head of affairs who faced the music firmly and undaunted, indeed not without a dash of rashness, and did not judge a thing to be impossible just because it had never happened before. The conversation which Excellency von Knobelsdorff had about eight days after the memorable court ball with Grand Duke Albrecht II in the Old Schloss belongs to the history of the times. The day before, the President of Council had presided over a session of the Cabinet, about which the courier had been in a position to report that questions of finance and the private affairs of the Grand Ducal family had been discussed, and further, added the newspapers in spaced type, that complete unanimity of opinion had been reached among the ministers. So Herr von Knobelsdorff found himself in a strong position towards his young monarch at the audience, for he had not only the swarming mass of the people, but also the unanimous will of the government at his back. The conversation in Albrecht's drafty study took scarcely less time than that in the little yellow room at the Schloss Hermitage. A pause was made while the Grand Duke had a lemonade, and Herr von Knobelsdorff a glass of port and biscuits. The long duration of the conversation was due only to the importance of the material to be discussed, not to the monarch's opposition, for Albrecht raised none. In his close frock coat, with his thin, sensitive hands crossed on his lap, his proud, refined head with its pointed beard and narrow temples raised and his eyelids sunk, he sucked gently with his lower lip against his upper, and accompanied Herr von Knobelsdorff's remarks with an occasional slight nod, which expressed agreement and disagreement at the same time, an uninterested formal agreement without prejudice to his unassailable personal dignity. Herr von Knobelsdorff plunged straight into the middle of things and spoke about Prince Klaus Heinrich's visits to Schloss Delphinenort. Albrecht knew of them. A subdued echo of the events which kept the city and the country on tiptoe had penetrated even into his loneliness. He knew, too, his brother Klaus Heinrich, who had rummaged and gossiped with the lackeys, and then he knocked his forehead against the big table, had wept for sympathy with his forehead, and, in effect, he needed no coaching. Lisping and reddening slightly, 
he gave Herr von Knobelsdorff to understand this, and added that, seeing that the other had not intervened, but had caused the millionaire's daughter to be introduced to him, he concluded that Herr von Knobelsdorff approved of the prince's behavior, although he, the Grand Duke, could not clearly see what it would lead to. "'The government,' answered Herr von Knobelsdorff, "'would set itself in prejudicial and estranging opposition to the will of the people if it thwarted the prince's projects.' "'Has my brother, then, definite projects?' "'For a long time,' corrected Herr von Knobelsdorff, "'he acted without any plan, and merely as his heart dictated. "'But since he has found himself with the people on terms of reality, "'his wishes have taken a practical form.' "'All of which means that the public approves the steps taken by the prince?' "'That it acclaims them, Royal Highness,' that its dearest hopes are fixed on them. And now Herr von Knobelsdorff unrolled once more the dark picture of the state of the country, of its distress, of the serious embarrassment. Where was a remedy to be found? Yonder, only yonder, in the town park, in the second center of the city, in the house of the invalid money prince, our guest and residence, round whose person the people wove their dreams, and for whom it would be a small matter to put an end to all our difficulties. If he could be induced to take upon himself our national finances, their recovery would be assured. Would he be induced? But fate had ordained an exchange of sympathy between the mighty man's only daughter and Prince Klaus Heinrich. And was this wise and gracious ordinance to be flouted? Ought one, for the sake of mulish, out-of-date traditions, to prevent a union which embraced so immeasurable a blessing for the country and its people? For that it did was a necessary hypothesis, from which the union must draw its justification and validity. But if this condition were fulfilled, if Samuel Spillmann were ready, not to mince words, to finance the state, then this union was not only admissible, it was necessary." it was salvation. The welfare of the state demanded it, the prayers rose to heaven for it, far beyond the frontiers, wherever any interest was felt in the restoration of our finances and the avoidance of an economic panic. At this point the Grand Duke asked a question quietly, with a mocking smile and without looking up. "'And the succession to the throne?' he asked. The law, answered Herr von Knobelsdorff, unshaken, places it in your royal highness's hand to put aside dynastic scruples. With us, the grant of an advance in rank, and even of equal birth, belongs to the prerogatives of the monarch, and when could history show a more potent motive for the exercise of these privileges? This union bears the mark of its own genuineness, Preparations have been long in making for its reception in the heart of the people, and your entire princely and state approval would signify to the people nothing more than an outward satisfaction of their inmost convictions. And Herr von Knobelsdorff went on to speak of Imma Spulmann's popularity, of the significant demonstration in connection with her recovery from a slight indisposition, of the position of equal birth which this exceptional person assumed in popular fancy, and the wrinkles played round his eyes as he reminded Albrecht of the old prophecy current among the people, 
which told of a prince who would give the country more with one hand than others had given it with two, and eloquently demonstrated how the union between Klaus Heinrich and Spulmann's daughter must seem to the people the fulfillment of the oracle, and thus God's will and right and proper. Herr von Knobelsdorff said a great deal more which was clever, honest, and good. He alluded to the fourfold mixture of blood in Imish Bullmann, for besides the Anglo-Saxon, Portuguese, and German, some drops of ancient Indian blood were said to flow in her veins, and emphasized the fact that he expected the dynasty to benefit greatly by the quickening effect of the mixture of races on ancient stocks. But the artless old gentleman made his greatest effect when he talked about the huge and beneficial alterations which would be caused in the economical state of the court itself, our debt-laden and sore-pressed court, through the heir to the throne's bold marriage. It was at this point that Albrecht sucked most proudly at his upper lip. The value of gold was falling, the outgoings were increasing, increasing in pursuance of an economic law which held for the court finances just as much as for every private household, and there was no possibility of increasing the revenues. But it was not right that the monarch's means should be inferior to those of many of his subjects. It was from the monarch's point of view intolerable that soap-boiler Unschlitz house should have had central heating a long time ago, but that the old Schloss should not have got it yet. A remedy was necessary in more than one way, and lucky was the princely house to which so grand a remedy as this offered itself. It was noteworthy in our times that the old-time modesty as to busying oneself in the financial concerns of the court had vanished, that self-renunciation with which princely families used formerly to make the heaviest sacrifices, so as to keep the public from disenchanting glimpses into their financial affairs, was no longer to be found, and lawsuits and questionable sales were the order of the day. But was not an alliance with sovereign riches preferable to this petty and bourgeois kind of device, a union which would exalt the monarch forever high above all economic worries and place him in a position to reveal himself to the people with all those outward signs for which they longed? So ran Herr von Knobelsdorff's questions, which he himself answered with an unqualified yes. In short, his speech was so clever and so irresistible that he did not leave the old Schloss without taking with him consents and authorizations, delivered to him with a proud lisp, which were quite comprehensive enough to warrant unprecedented conclusions, if only Miss Spulmann had done her share. And so things ran their memorable course to a happy conclusion. Even before the end of December, names were mentioned of people who had seen, not only heard tell of, Lord Marshal von Bühl zu Bühl in a fur coat, a top hat on his brown head, and his gold pince-nez on his nose, get out of a court carriage at Delphinenort at eleven o'clock on a snow-dark morning, and disappear waddling into the Schloss. At the beginning of January there were individuals going about the town who swore that the man who, this time also in the morning, and in fur coat and top hat, had passed by the grinning negro in plush, through the door of Delphinenort, and with feverish haste had flung himself into a cab which was waiting for him, was undoubtedly our finance minister, Dr. Krippenreuther. 
and at the same time there appeared in the semi-official courier the first preparatory notices of rumours touching an impending betrothal in the grand ducal house tentative notifications which becoming carefully clearer and clearer at last exhibited the two names klaus heinrich and imma spoelmann in clear print next each other it was no new collocation but to see it in black and white had the same effect as strong wine it was most absorbing to notice what attitude in the journalistic discussions which ensued our enlightened and open-minded press took up towards the popular aspect of the affair namely the prophecy which had won too great political significance not to demand education and intelligence to deal satisfactorily with it soothsaying chiromancy and similar magic explained the courier were so far as the destiny of individuals was concerned to be relegated to the murky regions of superstition they belonged to the grey middle ages and no ridicule was too severe for the idiots who very rarely in the cities nowadays let experienced pickpockets empty their purses in return for reading from their hands the cards or coffee grounds their insignificant fortunes or for invoking sound health for a homeopathic cure or for freeing their sick cattle from invading demons as if the apostle had not already asked doth god take care for oxen but surveyed as a whole and restricted to decisive turns in the destiny of whole nations or dynasties the proposition did not necessarily repel a well-trained and scientific mind that as time is only an illusion and truly viewed all happenings are stationary in eternity such revolutions while still in the lap of future might give the human brain a premonitory shock and reveal themselves palpably to it and in proof of this the zealous newspaper published an exhaustive composition kindly put at its disposal by one of our high school professors which gave a conspectus of all the cases in history of mankind in which oracle and horoscope somnambulism clairvoyance dreams sleepwalking second sight and inspiration had played a role a most meritorious production which produced the due effect in cultured circles so press government court and public closed their ranks in complete understanding and assuredly the courier would have held its tongue had its philosophical contributions been premature and politically dangerous at that time in a word had not the negotiations at delphinenort already advanced far in a favorable direction it is pretty accurately known by now how these negotiations developed at what a difficult indeed painful task our council had in them the council to whom as proxy of the court the delicate mission had fallen of preparing the way for prince klaus heinrich's courtship as well as the chief financial assessor who notwithstanding his infirm state of health insisted on nursing his country's interests by a personal interview with samuel spoelmann in this connection account must be taken firstly of mr spoelmann's fiery and excitable disposition and secondly of the fact that to the prodigious little man a favorable termination to the business from our point of view seemed far less important than it did to us apart from mr spoelmann's love for his daughter who had opened her heart to him and told him of her pretty wish to make herself useful in her love our proxies had not one trump to play against him 
and he was the last man to whom Dr. Krippenreuter could dictate conditions in virtue of what Herr von Bühl had to offer. Mr. Spoelmann always spoke of Prince Klaus Heinrich as the young man, and expressed so little pleasure at the prospect of giving his daughter to a royal highness to wife, that Dr. Krippenreuter, as well as Herr von Bühl, were more than once plunged into deadly embarrassment. "'If he'd only learnt something, had some respectable business,' he snarled peevishly. "'But a young man who only knows how to get cheered—' He was really furious, the first time a remark was dropped about morganatic marriage. His daughter, he declared once for all, was no concubine, and would be no left-handed wife. Who marries her, marries her. But the interests of dynasty and the country coincided at this point with his own. The obtaining of issue entitled to succeed was a necessity, and Herr von Bühl was equipped with all the powers which Herr von Knobelsdorff had succeeded in extracting from the Grand Duke. As for Dr. Krippenreuter's mission, however, it owed its success not to the envoy's eloquence, but simply to Mr. Spoelmann's paternal affection, the complacence of a suffering, weary father, whose abnormal existence had long ago made him a paradox towards his only daughter and heiress, whom he allowed to choose for herself the public funds in which she wished to invest her fortune. And so came into existence the agreements, which were at first shrouded in deep secrecy, and only came to light bit by bit as events developed themselves, though here they can be summarized in a few plain words. The betrothal of Klaus Heinrich with Imma Spoelmann was approved and recognized by Samuel Spoelmann and by the House of Grimburg. Simultaneously with the publication of the betrothal in the Gazette appeared the announcement of the elevation of the bride to the rank of countess, under a fancy name of romantic sound, like that which Klaus Heinrich had borne during his educational tour in the fair southern lands. And on the day of their wedding, the wife of the heir presumptive, was to be given the dignity of a princess. The two rises in rank, which might have cost 4,800 marks, were to be free of duty. The wedding was to be only preliminarily a left-handed one, till the world had got used to it, for on the day on which it appeared that the bride was to be blessed with offspring, Albrecht II, in view of the unparalleled circumstances would declare his brother's morganatic wife to be of equal birth, and would give her the rank of a princess of the Grand Ducal House with the title of Royal Highness. The new member of the ruling house would waive all claim to an appanage. As for the court ceremony, only a semi-court was appointed for the celebration of the left-handed marriage, but a processional court, that highest and completest form of showing allegiance, was fixed for the celebration of the Declaration of Equal Birth. Samuel Spillmann, for his part, granted the state a loan of 350 million marks, and on such fatherly conditions that the loan showed all the symptoms of being a gift. It was the Grand Duke Albrecht who acquainted the heir presumptive with these conclusions. Once more Klaus Heinrich stood in the great drafty study under the battered ceiling paintings in front of his brother, as once before when Albrecht had delegated to him his representative duties, and standing in an official attitude, received the great news. 
He had put on the tunic of a major in the fusiliers of the guard for this audience, while the Grand Duke had lately added to his black frock-coat a pair of dark red wool mittens, which his aunt had made him to protect him from the draught through the high windows of the old Schloss. When Albrecht had finished, Klaus Heinrich stepped one pace sideways, closed his heels with a fresh salute, and said, "'I beg, dear Albrecht, to offer my heartfelt and respectful thanks, in my own name and that of the whole country, for it is you in the long run who make all these blessings possible, and the redoubled love of the people will be your reward for your magnanimous resolutions.' He pressed his brother's thin, sensitive hand, which he kept close to his chest, and extended to him only to the extent of moving his forearm. The Grand Duke had thrust forward his short, round underlip, and his eyelids were half-closed. He answered softly with a lisp, "'I am the less inclined to entertain illusions about the people's love, as I can, as you know, dispense with such questionable love without a pang. So question whether I deserve it is scarcely worth notice. When it's time to start, I go to the station and give the signal to the engine-driver, which is silly rather than dutiful. But it's my duty. But you're in a different position. You're a Sunday child. Everything turns out trumps for you. I wish you luck, he said, raising the lids from his lonely-looking blue eyes. And it was clear at this moment that he loved Klaus Heinrich. I wish you happiness, Klaus Heinrich, but not too much, and that you may not repose too comfortably in the love of the people. I have already said that everything turns out trumps for you. The girl of your choice is very strange, very undomesticated, and, most important of all, very original. She has a mixture of blood. I've been told that Indian blood flows in her veins. That's perhaps a good thing. With a wife like that, there's less danger, perhaps, of your having too easy a time. Neither happiness, said Klaus Heinrich, nor the people's love will have the effect of making me cease to be your brother. He left to face a difficult interview, a tete-a-tete -tete with Mr. Spillmann, his personal proposal for Emma's hand. He found he had to swallow what his negotiators had swallowed, for Samuel Spillmann showed not the smallest pleasure and snarled several refreshing truths at him. But it was over at last, and the morning came when the betrothal appeared in the Gazette. The long tensions resolved into endless jubilation. Dignified men waved pocket-handkerchiefs at one another, and embraced in the open square. Bunting flew from every flagstaff. But the same day the news reached Schloss Hermitage that Raoul Überbein had committed suicide. The story was a vile as well as a stupid one, and would not be worth relating had not its end been so horrible. No attempt will be made here to apportion the blame. The doctor's death gave rise to two opposing factions. One affirmed that he had been driven to take his life owing to the misgivings which his desperate act had evoked. The others declared with a shrug that his conduct was impossible and crazy, and that he had shown all his life a total lack of self-control. The point need not be decided. At any rate, nothing justified so tragic an end. Indeed, a man with the gifts of Raoul Überbein deserved something better than ruin. 
Here is the story. At Easter the year before, the professor in charge of the top class but one at our grammar school, who suffered from heart weakness, had been temporarily retired on the ground of his illness, and Dr. Überbein, notwithstanding his comparative youth, had been given the first vacant chair simply in view of his professional zeal and his undeniably remarkable success in a lower class. It was a happy experiment, as events proved. The class had never done so well as this year. The professor on leave, a popular man with his colleagues, had become a peevish as well as careless and indolent man as the result of his infirmity, with which was combined a sociable but immoderate inclination for beer. He had shut his eyes to details, and had sent up every year an extremely badly prepared batch of pupils into the select. A new spirit had come into the class with the temporary professor, and nobody was surprised at it. People knew his uncomfortable professional zeal, his single-minded and never-resting energy. They foresaw that he would not miss such an opportunity for self-advancement, round which he had doubtless built ambitious hopes. So an end had soon been put to laziness and boredom in the second class. Dr. Überbein had pitched his expectations high, and his skill in inspiring even the most recalcitrant had proved irresistible. The boys worshipped him. His superior, fatherly, and jolly, swaggering way kept them on the alert, shook them up, and made them feel it a point of honor to follow their teacher through thick and thin. He won their hearts by going for Sunday excursions with them, when they were allowed to smoke, while he bewitched their imaginations by boyishly conceived rodomontades about the greatness and severity of public life. And on Monday the members of yesterday's expedition would meet for work in a cheerful and eager frame of mind. Three-quarters of the school year had thus passed, when the news went round before Christmas that the professor on leave, now fairly strong again, would resume his duties after the holidays, and would again act as professor of the second class. And now it came out what sort of man Dr. Überbein was, with his green complexion and superior manner. He objected and remonstrated. He lodged a vigorous and, in form, not incontestable protest against the class with which he had spent three-quarters of the year, and whose work and recreation he had shared up to the very mouth of the goal, being taken from its professor for the last quarter, and restored to the official who had spent three-quarters of the year on leave. His action was intelligible and comprehensible, and one must sympathize with it. He had undoubtedly hoped to send up a model class to the headmaster, who taught the select, a class whose forwardness would put his skill in the best light, and would hasten his promotion and it must grieve him to look forward to another's reaping the fruits of his devotion. But though his disgust might be excusable, his frenzy was not. And it is an unfortunate fact that, when the headmaster proved deaf to his representations, he became simply frenzied. He lost his head, he lost all balance, he set heaven and hell to work to prevent this loafer, this alcohol heart, this blankety-blank, as he did not hesitate to describe the professor on leave, from taking his class from him, and when he found no support among his colleagues, as was natural in the case of so unsociable a man, the poor wretch had so far forgotten himself as to incite the pupils entrusted to him to rebel. 
he had put the question to them from his desk. "'Whom do you want for your master for the last quarter, me or that other fellow?' And wound up by his stirring appeal, they had shouted that they wanted him. Then he said, they must take matters into their own hands, show their colors, and act as one boy, though goodness knows what in his excitement he meant by that. But when after the holidays the returned professor entered the classroom, they screamed Dr. Überbein's name at him for minutes on end, and there was a fine scandal. It was kept as quiet as possible. The revolutionaries got off almost unpunished, as Dr. Überbein himself put on record, at the inquiry which was at once initiated, his appeal to them. As to the doctor himself, too, the authorities seemed generally inclined to close their eyes to what had happened. His zeal and skill were highly valued. Certain learned works, the fruits of his mighty industry, had made his name known. He was popular in high quarters, quarters, be it noticed, with which he personally did not come into contact and which, therefore, he could not incense by his patronizing bearing. Further, his record as tutor of Prince Klaus Heinrich weighed in the scales. In short, he was not simply dismissed, as one might have expected him to be. The president of the Grand Ducal Council of Education, before whom the matter came, administered a grave reprimand to him, and Dr. Überbein, who had stopped teaching directly after the scandal, was provisionally retired but people who knew declared later that nothing was intended beyond the professor's transfer to another grammar school, that in high quarters the only wish was to hush up the whole business, and that the promise of a brilliant future had been actually extended to the doctor. Everything would have turned out all right. But the milder the authorities showed themselves toward the doctor, the more hostile was the attitude of his colleagues towards him. The teachers' union at once established a court of honor, whose object was to secure satisfaction for their beloved member, the alcohol-hearted professor rejected of his pupils. The written statement laid before Überbein in his retirement in his lodgings ran as follows. Whereas Überbein had resisted the return of the colleague for whom he acted to the professorship of the second class, whereas further he had agitated against him, and in the end had actually incited the pupils to insubordination against him, he had been guilty of disloyal conduct to his colleague of such a kind as must be considered dishonorable, not only in a professional but also in a general sense. That was the verdict. The expected result was that Dr. Überbein, who had only been a nominal member of the teachers' union, withdrew his membership, and there, so many thought, he might well have let the matter rest. But whether it was that in his seclusion he did not know the goodwill he inspired in higher quarters, that he thought his prospects more hopeless than they were, that he could not stand idleness, unreconciled as he was to the premature loss of his beloved class, that the expression dishonorable poisoned his blood, or that his mind was not strong enough to stand all the shocks it received at this time, Five weeks after the new year his landlady found him on the threadbare carpet of his room, no greener than usual, but with a bullet through his heart. Such was the end of Raoul Überbein, such his false step, such the cause of his fall. I told you so was the burden of all the discussions of his pitiful breakdown. 
the quarrelsome and uncongenial man who had never been a man amongst men at his club who had haughtily resisted familiarity and had ordered his life cold-bloodedly with a view to results alone and had supposed that that gave him the right to patronize the whole world there he lay now the first hitch the first obstacle in the field of accomplishment had brought him to a miserable end few of the bourgeois regretted none of them mourned him with one single exception the chief surgeon at the dorothea hospital überbein's congenial friend and perhaps a fair lady with whom he used to once play casino but klaus heinrich always cherished an honorable and cordial memory of his ill-fated tutor End of section 22